Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the Bicom podcast, Tal Shalev, the political correspondent at Wala News. Tal, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you for having me. So um, we, we're in a moment uh, here where we have finally passed, uh, the Israeli government has passed the budget, even two weeks ahead of, ahead of deadline, and there is uh, what seems to be relative political stability here. So I'm looking forward to discussing these issues with you today. If perhaps we could start, if you could just give us, give us an outline of what the highlights or the most significant aspects of the budget were. Well, I think the most significant aspect of the budget is just the fact that it passed. Um, Israel, uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli, you know, public and industrial sector um, and the economic sector have been working under a lot of instability in the past uh, three years because of um, because of the political chaos and the political crisis. And um, the last time that a um, that a budget was passed was over three years ago. Um, that being said, there were there was money that was being pumped into the system, of course, during COVID nineteen, but it wasn't in the you know, regular and legal procedure of passing a budget. So because there was there, there, we didn't have a budget for so long, just the fact that a budget passed, you know, it kind of uh, um, uh, was bigger than a regular budget. You know, basically passing a budget is supposed to be the most procedural thing that a government would do. But because um, the, bu the budget wasn't passed in Israel in the past few years, and politically this is uh, attributed to Netanyahu, then I think that passing the budget even got some kind of mythological, you know, kind of turned into this mythological creature for the government. And that was one of the first, if not the most important goal that the Bennett-Lapid coalition uh, posed when it was established. Um, so the most significant aspect of the budget is the fact that it passed and the fact that now after uh, years of uh, instability, um, the Israeli government offices can finally, you know, start doing um, regular and normal plans and not just work on a continuous budget. Um, and they are going to and they can promote new um, growth and new uh, programs and new reforms. So that is definitely the most significant aspect of the budget. Thank you for that. Are there any specific aspects that you think are, are, are particularly worth kind of highlighting, I suppose, for, for our international audience? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that uh, Finance Minister Lieberman kind of defined as his priorities, economic stability, um, reducing the cost of living, fighting crime, heavy investment in transportation. Are these kind of, are these goals being met, do you think? Well, I think that this, uh, the, the budget, which of course in, also includes what's called an arrangements law, which is uh, a, a bill that includes all about 70, if I'm not mistaken, or at least dozens of uh, reforms and big reforms and plans, you know, such as uh, um, raising the retirement age for women, transportation and traffic uh, programs. Um, as you mentioned, um, um, the, the cost of living is a big issue here. So um, the, re the arrangements law has, um, um, has a reform about opening, you know, the market and opening up some of the mo monopolies in Israel um, to import and to try and, you know, um, bring down prices, lower the prices by uh, um, increasing the um, 
tafawut by increasing competition. Yeah, by increasing competition. Um, so all of these plans, you know, have been in the works for years, and sudden, and now they've been passed in one of in one of the biggest reform bills that Israel has ever passed. And um, yeah, you mentioned uh, the goals that Lieberman posed. Um, you know, regarding the cost of living, that is a problem that Israeli governments have been trying to tackle for the past decade or so, not successfully. I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's realistic to think that this government will be able to do so, but um, it is worth mentioning that because this government is a very complicated coalition, you know, that has right wing and left wing parties, um, they were very, very keen and directed on, you know, uh, getting to agreements on the budget. So there are very, there's a lot of agreements regarding the plans um, that are part of the budget. And the minute that the budget has been passed, these plans can immediately start to be, uh, um, you know, implemented. Um, the main question is, will um, all of the government, uh, will the government, you know, will the government offices have enough time to implement? Um, it really depends you know, so how realistic are uh, Lieberman's goals? It kind of depends on how long this government will last. If the government lasts and the ministers have time in their offices and um, many of these uh, programs and reforms um, can move forward. But if uh, by any chance um, the government falls and again, we dissolve into chaos or into another round of elections, then basically most of them could go down the drain. Mm. Well, we'll talk about the, uh, the life expectancy, perhaps, of the government in a, in, in, a, in a few minutes. But just to come back on what you were saying about kind of successive governments working on the uh, trying to bring down the, the cost of living. There was some, uh, I think, on the, one of the radio shows that you hosted yesterday um, on Army Radio was discussing the idea of some of the supermarket executives kind of warning the, uh, the, uh, the Israeli public that prices are going to rise. Um, I mean, how, how dangerous is this? Uh, for, for the government politically? Do you think this budget was overreaching in terms that they're going to need to recapture some more taxation? So I think that um, it seems, you know, as we speak, it seems as like this issue of the prices and the cost of living could turn into, you know, perhaps um, the Bennett Lapid's biggest disaster, the, the government's biggest disaster if they can't tackle it. And um, yes, just now recently, we're uh, um, we're under we're in the midst of this big uh, scandal regarding uh, prices in the supermarkets. There's an ongoing problem with the price and the cost of living. It's impossible or almost impossible to buy a house here. The uh, renting prices are very high. Um, the housing prices is another issue. Um, and I think that uh, it's not so much about the budget and more about you know Israel stepping out of the COVID crisis, stepping the economy, trying to get back on its uh, in, get back on its feet after the COVID crisis, and the big monopolies in Israel um, trying to you know maximize their gains. And Israel has suffered from monopoly, you know, from, from a monopoly economy in various sectors over the years. And so far, um, in some of them, the government was very successful in breaking down the monopoly and lowering the prices, just to mention, you know, cell phone, uh, there was a big cell phone reform, which lowered the prices of uh, 
uh, telecommunications. Um, there was a very um, far-reaching reform regarding flights, the open sky reform, which lowered the cost of uh, flying abroad. Um, but I don't know how the government can actually tackle this issue. Um, I'm not sure that the government is strong enough uh, we to, you know, to fight uh, the big monopolies in the food industry. Uh, we should remember that this is a very narrow government. It's the government which has only one vote majority. So in order to really, you know, take up a fight, a real fight with a very, you know, strong uh, enemy, in this case, uh, the food industry monopolies and cartels, um, you have to, I, I, I think you might have to be just a bit stronger. I'm not sure that this government is strong enough. Hmm, very, very interesting. We've well, alluded a couple of times to kind of to the uh, to the political machinations. Um, it's, it struck me that one of the uh, this, this bizarre dynamics of having uh, on one side of the government such a, a broad and diverse government and the first time in 12 years having the Likud in opposition who are doing everything that they can to embarrass and block the government. We've seen some kind of political anom anomalies, I would say. Um, we saw it first when the Likud voted against the extension of the family unification law, a law that they backed for the 18 years previously, um, and switched their position just to embarrass the government. This week, this week we saw another political anomaly, this time the, the religious Zionists, including the, the, the far-right uh, Ben Gvir, pushing to build a hospital in the Arab town of Sakhnin, playing on deliberately the idea of one of the, uh, the, um, the Muslim members of the government being from Sakhnin. Is that, can you just uh, kind of explain to our audience what's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that basically all the traditional walls that used to be in Israeli politics between, you know, the Jews and the Arabs have broken since um, Mansour Abbas and Ram joined the coalition. Um, and we should remind that Netanyahu was the one who kind of, you know, kosher, gave the kosher uh, mark to the relationship and to cooperating with Mansour Abbas. And the minute that you broke down that wall and you have this weird, um, weird situation in which on the one hand you have a coalition with one Arab party, and on the other hand you have an opposition with an other Arab party, now, the joint list who's in the opposition, it um, has, um, it, its goal is to embarrass Ra'am inside the coalition as much as possible. The only way they can do that is by cooperating with the Likud. Now, but we should remember that the Likud, you know, is led by Netanyahu, who is, a, is, a, is an enemy of the joint list. So we're seeing new alliances, um, practical alliances, mostly in the parliament, mostly um, aimed at embarrassing the coalition. From the Likud's point of view, the, they have understood that the only way or the best way to embarrass the coalition or to uh, weaken it is by focusing on Ram, on uh, Mansour Abbas's list. The Likud have identified Ram as, you know, the weak link inside the coalition, and they have a very effective opposition on the outside because, um, you know, Mansour Abbas made a revolutionary move by joining the government, um, but it, it's it's non-conventional um, in many ways uh, uh, for the Arab public. And the joint list who's in the opposition is trying to, you know, to capitalize on that and trying to attack them at any chance. Now, 
if the Likud wants to embarrass with the numbers just don't play out, if the Likud wants to embarrass the coalition, the only way they can do that is by cooperating with the joint list. And the joint list is basically the main benefactor of the situation because all of these initiatives, which you know, in the past probably the Likud would automatically be against, such such as you know, building a um, a new hospital in Sakhalin and um, the reunification bill and so and so on and so forth. Um, in the past, they would autom automatically vote against moves by the joint list, and now they're partners. So we see this very right, this very weird anomaly. I I got to admit that I think it's an um, optimistic anomaly. I like it. I think it's interesting. It's redesigning the relationships, the political relationships between um, Jews and Arabs, and you know, basically, de um, not de legit giving it legitimization. It's out in the open. Um, in the past, um, the Arab parties and the Arab MKs always cooperated with some of the Jewish parties, even with the Likud, but it was always under the table. And now it's on the table. Mansour Abbas is with the coalition. Ayman Uda and the joint list, are, joint list are with the opposition. And this indeed brings uh, very weird um, shows um, in which the Likud rejoice with Ayman Uda and, the joint, and Ahmed Tibi and the joint list about achievements that basically their only goal is to embarrass the coalition. Fascinating. I mean, do you mean just as a, as a political insider, do you think is the Likud holding the all the strings here? I mean, is there any direct conversation within the opposition between Ayman Oda and Ahmed Tibi and uh, and and Ben Gvir and Smotrich? Um, well, <laughs> I don't think that uh, um, there's a. I don't think that Ayman Oda and Vitalis Smotrich or Itamar Ben Gvir have become <laughs> best friends. Um, I don't think do that. They, it, do, do they talk? Do they do they kind of do, do, behind the scenes? Do you think they they are in coordination directly? Well, you know, they well, a they sit next to each other in the plenum. So first of all, physically they talk. Uh, B most of the coordination is done by the Likud and by Shas mm. Ariaderi. Um, Shas traditionally had a very good relationship with the Arab parties um, and with Ahmed Tibi. You know, Ahmed Tibi is one of the most. Um, Long, longest serving uh, Knesset members. Uh, so is uh, um, so is Derry, and I think that uh, Derry is a very big actor here. Um, there's no direct talk, and really, you know, at the same time that the Likud vote with the joint list, they are uh, in, they are pushing a very strong campaign against any cooperation with uh, Ram. So I don't think that, you know, this is the beginning of a new era, and I don't think that the joint lists are ever going to sit in a, co in a uh, coalition with uh, the Likud. But, you know, um, per, per se, per case, or um, like each time there's a chance that they can embarrass the, co the coalition together, they will do it. That being said, the only real way or real effective way that the opposition has to bring down the government goes through uh, what is called a constructive uh, vote of no, no confidence. And in that case, the opposition needs to present um, 61 uh, supporters for another government instead of the one that they want to bring down. And to think that the joint list will support a government with the Likud and with Smotrich 
in order to replace this government, um, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, that's where the cooperation ends. The joint list does not want Netanyahu to go, come back to power. They don't want the Likud to come back to power, and they definitely don't want Smotrich and Benvir to, to be part of the government. They prefer this government, but they're playing with the Likud in order to maximize their political gain inside the Arab street. I mean, another one of these uh, kind of difficult issues, again, which I suppose on this case is trying to embarrass the Yamina party, is the opposition agenda to try and legalize what uh, is referred to, used to be referred to as the illegal outpost, kind of the, the uh, outspring of, uh, of, uh, from settlements, which they're calling young, young settlements. Um, again, if you could just give us an insight of what's, what's happening there and if that legislation is likely, likely to pass at all. Well, um, every week there's a different bill that the opposition puts forward, um, the right-wing opposition puts forward in order to embarrass the right-wing coalition members. So far, I got to say the right-wing coalition members have not been very much embarrassed and this has not been, this has not been successful. I mean, it's good for PR, it creates, you know, a very um, lively uh, plenum debate with shouts from between the coalition and the opposition, but it doesn't really succeed to embarrass uh, um, the members of the uh, coalition, the right-wing members of the coalition. Um, on the government's table, um, there are a few issues that have been like stacked and waiting for till after the budget. You know, the the government, the coalition did uh, put the budget as you know its number one goal. So they kind of postponed and uh, put aside many of the burning issues that they need to make decisions on. And many of these issues have to do you know, with left and right Palestinian settlers, et cetera, et cetera, and can bring out, um, can create very tense situations inside the coalition. So just legalizing outposts or um, if it's by a bill or by, um, you know, dealing with Eviatar, which is an, uh, an uh, illegal outpost, which is now, you know, being debated inside the coalition. This essentially, it, mainly creates kind of floats the tensions, the right and wing tensions inside the coalition. But the common assumption, assumption is that, you know, no one in the, no one in this government or almost no one in this government has any options on the outside. Almost no one in this government has anything to gain from elections. So the common assumption is that, you know, they might be embarrassed here and there and they might lose a vote once in a while inside uh, in the plenum because they have such a slim majority but nothing will be significant enough to you know kind of you know bring down the coalition um just you mentioned eviatar um this was the outpost established after the the terror attack by tapuz junction and the government agreed on a compromise that the, uh, the settlers that initially took the site would be removed that a yeshiva a religious seminary would be set up on the site whilst they did the, uh, the, 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 uh, the background checks to see if it was private land or state land that could be built on. Um, what do you think is going to play out there? Well, I think um, it'll be, again, it'll be a test for the coalition. If Yatar is a tense, it's tense and of course touchy for both um, the Labour Party and for Meretz. And both of them have been quite clear in the past few weeks that they will not uh, agree that the outpost will be legalized. Um, 
that and and not evacuated or that they will be able to go back there the residents that being said it's not really up to them to labor and merits um this is a decision that is you know essentially it's made by it's the the authority is in the hands of the defense minister and the prime minister and that's where the decision will be made and i think that at the end of the day uh bennett and guns will probably try both of them to find a, a, a solution that will keep the settlers, um, I'm not sure happy, but at least not angry. Um, and they'll do it at the cost of hearing protests from labor and merits, but you know, there, there's a lot of protests and there's criticism, but it, again, as long as it doesn't bring down the government or it doesn't create, you know, instability, then it's just another, um, another fight in the coalition. Another another kind of thorny issue that may was we're expecting to come back on the agenda is the issue of the opening or the, the reopening of the US cons, cons, consulate um, in Jerusalem um, that was obviously closed by President Trump and uh, President Biden has made an election commitment to reopen it uh, against kind of pushback from from the majority of the, the senior members of the government. What do you think is going to play out there? So this is probably going to be the first test uh, for the, you know, the relationship between the Biden administration and the government. Again, I think that the Biden administration, like uh, other international players, but especially the Biden administration, they understand the fragility of the situation here in Israel. And they understand that, you know, if this government falls, that there's a large chance that Netanyahu will come back into power. So I think that we, again, we might hear some tit for that, tit for tat, and we might have some verbal exchanges between the State Department spokesmen and Israeli ministers on the consulate issue. But at the end of the day, um, Naftali Bennett will have to protest uh, loudly if the US decide eventually um, to open the consulate. So I think at the end of the day, it's the Biden administration's call if they wanna have this fight with the if it's this important, the fight with the Israeli government at this point, um, or if they can, you know, put off the election promise to to reopen the consulate. Um, just just one last question, kind of looking slightly further into the future. Um, in the celebratory uh, press conference that was held last weekend with the prime minister and the foreign minister and the, the finance minister, um, Prime Minister Bennett committed to the rotation deal, which is not scheduled until August 2023 when Prime Minister Lapid is due to become Prime Minister. By passing the budget, if the government does collapse, then, then Lapid, I understand, would become interim Prime Minister in any case. But what do you think of the prospects of uh, Prime, uh, Prime Minister Lapid's uh, uh, full-on full premiership? Richard, you don't expect me to predict what's going to happen from now <laughs> two years on, I, I'm sure. Um, I can tell you that, uh, I can tell you that, you know, that's the biggest question now after the budget has passed. Will Lapid become prime minister? Lapid himself, I think, understands that there's a high chance that he won't become prime minister. And I know that he took this into account when he signed the rotation agreement with Naftali Bennett and agreed to, be, to, to let Bennett be first. Um, I don't think that Lapid thinks, uh, Naftali Bennett will not be Lapid's problem. Naftali Bennett will probably keep his vow, but it's just not only up to him. There are other players, um, Ayala Chaked, Benny Gantz, Mirav Michaeli, Gidon Saar, players who do not necessarily want to see 
um, Lapid become prime minister. As you mentioned, after the budget is passed, in any case, he will become interim prime minister. But the question is, will he have a real long term or will it only be, you know, a short span term for a few months? Lapid knows that, there, that he might not become prime minister, but he decided to do it anyway because he thinks that he'll be gaining points amongst his electorate for just replacing the Netanyahu rule. I think he's probably right. Uh, when you look at the polls, then Lapid is the only member of the government who is doing better now than he did in the last elections. Um, and Lapid has, you know, gained a lot of appreciation amongst um, the left-wing camp, which in the past uh, despised him and discounted him. And now they do look to him as, in many ways, as the leader of their camp. Just because he led this government, even though he's not the prime minister, it's clear that he was one of the main actors in establishing this government, if not the most important actor, because, uh, you know, to give up uh, your premiership uh, for someone who comes from a party who's about third of your own is quite, um, is quite a compromise. And just one final question, if I may. We, we, we see next week is the, the resumption of the, uh, of the Netanyahu trials perhaps a key moment with one of his senior former advisors, Nir Hefetz, taking the, taking the stand, who turned state, state witness. And in parallel to that, we're seeing other developments, uh, uh, developments of bills to limit terms, uh, um, terms of prime ministers and also not allowing a, uh, a figure under indictment to form a government. Just can you give us an update where the, we are with the trial, how significant that is, and that legislative process as well? So the trial has been going on for about uh, half a year or so. Um, and uh, I think the most significant, yes, next week we're waiting for, you know, one of the most dramatic testimonies uh, by his senior advisor and state witness, Nir Hefet. Um, I think that uh, A, it's going, probably going to be the most scandalous um, testimony so far because Hefet really was one of, you know, was in the very, very closest circle around Netanyahu during his years um, as prime minister. Um, it's also going to be interesting because Netanyahu is probably going to appear in court for the first time um, since the trial officially opened half a year ago. And that, of course, will bring much more public attention to the trial than it has gained in the past few months. The trial is kind of, you know, in its very boring stage. I mean, there have been, um, I think, four or five, maybe six witnesses so far, but um, they're really going into details. It's not really in the public eye. Um, it's kind of going on, and it's probably going to take a very long time, this trial, if it continues as planned. Um, so I think that Netanyahu appearing in court and Hefet taking the stand is most significantly going to bring a lot of attention to the trial, which we haven't seen so far. Now, what's happening at the same time in the Knesset is that Gidon Sao, the um, uh, justice minister, is promoting a series of uh, anti-Netanyahu initiatives. Uh, one of them is an investigation uh, inquiry into the Submarine affair. And the two other and and two other bills, uh, one that would uh, a bill that would uh, put a cap or limit um, uh, the pr premier's term to eight years or to two uh, to two rounds uh, to two governments, and another bill that would disqualify uh, someone who's been indicted um, from 
becoming prime minister. And that is, you know, known as the big BB bill or more precisely the big anti-BB bill. Uh, Saab is promoting this bill, but it's not clear that Naftali Bennett and Yamina um, support it. So we still don't know if that will actually reach the floor and if uh, uh, Bennett can veto the initiative because it was not part of the initial uh, coalition agreements. In any case, there are a lot of people inside the coalition who think that this bill that, you know, that would, that would basically ban Netanyahu from becoming prime minister from now on, even though it's a supposedly not a personal bill, um, um, it does uh, mean that the, if the bill passes, Netanyahu will not be able to get the mandate to become prime minister again. Um, one of the assumptions inside the coalition that this dealing with the bill, promoting the bill will only bolster Netanyahu and will only strengthen Netanyahu because it will basically, you know, um, strengthen and give some basis to his campaign um, about a witch hunt and be, and uh, it will, um, and, him, and him, you know, the portrayal of him as someone who's being persecuted. Um, so, if you ask me, I'm not sure that that bill will essentially move forward, but if it will, then Netanyahu will probably capitalize on it politically. And just to add one thing, you know, there's a question always in the air since uh, this government was established and even more since the budget is passed, there's always speculations that maybe Netanyahu is going somewhere and maybe he'll retire and maybe he'll reach a deal. So far since the elections and since the, um, government was established. Netanyahu is only getting stronger and stronger in the polls. Um, in the latest polls, he's already in 37 or 36 seats compared to 30 uh, that he um, got in the last election. And I believe that as far and as long as he's uh, so strong in the polls, he's not going anywhere. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, listen, we, we may well come back to you to discuss uh, Likud politics and, uh, and Netanyahu's future on another occasion. But for today, thank you so much, Kyle. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much.